Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church, and if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin with today's study, then let's begin by turning our Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, for this message is entitled, Gonna Have to Trust Me. Why does God keep things from us? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, Jesus, he said, I am the light of the world, and I am the truth, and if you know the truth, and the truth will set you free, well, if that's true, then, then why, does I, why do I feel like, like, like I'm often wandering around in the dark, and I'm clueless as to what God is doing? Why does God keep things from us? Well, the easy answer is because he's sovereign and he can do whatever he wants, which rings true because God can do whatever he wants. If God couldn't do what he wanted, he wouldn't be God. But doesn't it speak to his nature just a little bit that he would withhold knowledge from us? And if so, why should I worship him if he wants to keep me in the dark? Why should I trust him when I know he likes to keep secrets from me? And listen, I understand it might sound sacrilegious or even heretical to ask a question like that, but, but please understand, we're not doing ourselves any favors by suppressing these questions. Questions like these need to be asked and addressed, for if we simply ignore them, then we're just left with a weak, shallow, superficial faith. Yes, questions like these will make us uncomfortable. However, they don't have to scare us. Listen, if we really believe that God is real, if he's really out there, then wouldn't it make sense? If he loves us, as scripture tells us he does, wouldn't it make sense that, that he can interact with us and he can give us an answer to these questions? Listen, because of Christ, we have the opportunity to come before God and, and to ask with courage and boldness these questions. Anxiously anticipate answers from God himself. God loves to wrestle with us with our questions regarding our faith. It's not wrong to ask questions like that. It's wrong to allow our questions to get away without being addressed. Without taking our questions to God. Without allowing scripture to speak to us about our questions. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, to take our thoughts captive means to not allow them to escape the room until we've properly interrogated them and weighed their innocence or guilt. No, this thought is under arrest. And I'm not letting you go until I have a verdict. Today, I want to try to address the uncomfortable question of why does God keep things from us? And I want to do this by continuing our study on the book of John. And I want to look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20 this morning. So before I go there, I just, I just want to quickly address the first occasion that anyone in Scripture ever felt like God was holding out on them. And I want to talk about what we can learn from it. In Genesis 3, Eve is tempted by the serpent in the garden to taste the forbidden fruit. 
And, and you know what we do? We think that if we were in the garden, knowing what we know now, that we would make a better decision. We think we know better, but here's the thing. Adam and Eve had knowledge of what was going to happen, and they still did it. God explicitly told them, do this, and you will die. And even though they had knowledge, they still did it. That's called the depravity of man. Our natural tendency is to run away from God and to worship things that aren't him. What do we worship? Well, today we live in an age of knowledge and reason where we have romanticized the notion that knowledge is power and knowledge should be worshipped. We often believe that if we had complete knowledge that we would be better than, than what we are. We would be better than who we are. And I suppose in a way this can make sense because with better knowledge we can make better decisions, but that's not always true. For example, society has taught us that if we rob a bank, we're going to go to jail. And for the most part, people avoid robbing banks. But not everybody. You see, some people think they know better. Oh, I can get away with it. No, you can't. We're going to catch you. But they still do it. Knowledge isn't power. Knowledge is knowledge. And power is power. Listen, my son Jake knows that he, if he throws a tantrum, he's going to get a spanking every single time. Do you think that stops him? No. We had a guy come to our high school one year who had no bottom jaw. And he talked about the dangers of dipping snuff in smokeless tobacco. Yet, do you think that stopped me or any of my friends from dipping snuff in ag class? No. Knowledge doesn't equal power. Much of the time, we have knowledge and we still rebel. That's what scripture refers to as searing our conscience. Conscience literally means with knowledge. We sear our consciences when we go against what we know is right. And before we dive into this study, I just want us to, I want to reiterate a couple of points. Knowledge doesn't equal power. And even if we knew all we wanted to know, that doesn't mean that we would obey God. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, the demons have knowledge of God but they don't obey him. The reality is, is that sometimes God does keep things from us. And that seems so ugly. God was holding out on Adam and Eve, right? And they broke trust with him to find out what it was. And as a result, they and we experience pain and suffering and sorrow and fatigue and weakness and hunger and murder and depravity and death. God was keeping them and us from things that weren't good for them. So before we begin, keep in mind that when God keeps things from us, it's not because he's being mean or deceptive or exclusive. It's for our good. God knows what is good for us and he withholds from us what isn't, which understandably can get twisted, especially when we see things that other people have that seem good for us. But just because it's good for other people does not mean that it's good for us. Also recognize that in order to have righteousness, in order to obey God and to be close to him, complete knowledge isn't sufficient. Power is also required. That is something that Jesus had, knowledge and power. Look at today's passage and I'll show you how. In John chapter 13, verses 1 
through 20. This is what it says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil already putting it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel and girded himself. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, uh, Simon said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. For you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and and, and rightly so, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that Scripture may be fulfilled, that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him. Who sent me. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, I pray that love and passion for you would be our first priority. That we would worship you first, not worship knowledge or any other thing. Not worship power, but worship you. And Father, I just pray that you will show us that you fully intend to not only give us knowledge, but to give us power and to give us knowledge through that power. I pray, God, that as we study this, we might lay down any hindrance, that we might walk away from any uncertainty, and that, Father, we might take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We love you, Father, and just thank you for this opportunity for us to study your word. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of John is really interesting. The first 12 chapters of John talk about Jesus' public ministry. And at the end of chapter 12, it's like he closes the door and he focuses on a private ministry to his disciples. We see that for at least the next five chapters. And that already raises up another argument. Why did Jesus do many things in secret? Why did he have an inner circle of men in private conversations? Again, the easy answer was because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. 
But more specifically, Jesus was dialed in on equipping his disciples. He told them on numerous occasions, listen, uh, occasions, listen, I'm doing this for you, specifically for you. For example, he told parables oftentimes where his disciples were the only ones who got the hidden secret meaning, the secret teaching. He didn't give other people what he gave the disciples. They were the ones that got to see certain miracles that nobody else got to see. He even told them that he intentionally let Lazarus die so that they would believe. You think about that for just a second. Jesus essentially told us, to, said to his disciples, Mary and Martha are a short distance away from us right now, crying their eyes out and feeling like I failed them. And I let it all happen so that you would believe. Jesus did everything for the sake of his inner circle. And before we begin to feel like we're excluded from a secret club that has a secret handshake, Jesus later prays for his disciple in the garden and all who would believe because of their testimony. That's you and me. God saw fit to glorify himself by equipping ignorant, sinful men with the power to preach the gospel into the all four corners of the world. Because of that, though, you and I believe. He did it so that one of his disciples would write this book that we are studying right now. Jesus wasn't being exclusive here. He was being deliberate. He had a plan, and praise God, we are a part of that plan. Now, one of the hardest things to do with the four Gospels is to make all the timelines fit together. In verse 1, John tells us, that this was before the feast of the Passover, that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And many people argue that, well, this was on Thursday night of the Passover, and other people argue, well, no, this was Wednesday night. Well, regardless of whichever you believe, I just want you to know you can still come to our church, okay? It doesn't really matter because the point is not on the time frame of the Passion Week. The point is on the message that John was sending about Jesus in the text. We see that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Multiple times in the book of John, we see this phrase, but his time had not yet come. His time has not yet come. And here we see his time has come. Time has come for what? What, what? what time has come? The time for God to reveal his ultimate purpose as to why he chose to make himself manifest and become flesh and dwell among us. This was the time when Jesus was heading for the cross to pay the price for our sin so that we could be made right with God. You know, we read Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That's what John says. He loved them to the very end. I listened to a message this week on Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, and the, the speaker addressed the question, uh, before there was time in creation, what was God doing? And he points out, and it's true, this is a flawed argument. Before time... What was God spending his time doing? Like, like, it doesn't make any sense. But scripture actually tells us what God was doing before he laid the foundation of the earth. You know what he's doing? He was choosing us. Scripture tells us he chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us to be conformed in the image of his son. Listen, he loves you so much that he felt it was more important to choose you than to speak the words, let there be light. He loved you so much that he felt it was more important to choose you than to lay the foundations of the world. He chose you first because you were highly favored and loved, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is and because he chose you to bring himself glory. 
For the rest of this message, I, I, I strongly would encourage you to pay special attention to the two men that John purposely calls attention to who are in the room with Jesus. Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Pay attention to what Jesus does with each of his disciples in verses 2 through 5. Look at this. It says, During supper, the devil, having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going to God, he got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself, then he poured water into a basin, and then began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Check this out. Jesus had full knowledge of what these two disciples in particular we're going to do as we see in scripture he tells them what they're going to do before they do it and we'll talk about this in greater detail a little bit next week but jesus this is what's crazy is that jesus or judas know that jesus knew what he was planning on multiple times jesus says john 6 70 i have chosen you have i not chosen you the 12 yet one of you is a devil <coughs> judas uh, uh. Like, Jesus even points out to him, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Yes, Judas, it's you. Judas, he knows what, he knows that you're going to do that. You know that he knows. What, what are you doing? Jesus even tells Simon Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Listen, I know this is silly, but my dad once had a dream that he died in the fishing aisle of Walmart picking out bait. He, he, he just like, you know what, I, I, I dreamed I was in Walmart on our fishing trip and I died. You know what my dad does now as a result? He never buys bait from Walmart again. To this day, he still avoids it. If you knew that you were going to die in a car wreck today, you wouldn't get in a car, right? Wrong. Just because you have knowledge does not mean you have the power to stop it. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Scripture tells us this. It shows us this through the prophecies. We see later on that Jesus said that Scripture in verse 18, I know the ones that I've chosen, but it is so that Scripture may be fulfilled. God says it. It happens. He's got the power and the knowledge to carry it out. And Jesus has knowledge too. And what he does is nothing short of incredible. He got up, took off his clothing, dressed himself in a loincloth, and he washed their feet. You know, several years ago when Saddam Hussein was captured by American soldiers, there was a mass horde of Iraqi people who celebrated in the streets. They pulled down all of his statues. They took off their shoes and their sandals, and they were putting their feet on the statues, and they were hitting the statues with their shoes. Because in, in their culture, and in biblical culture as well, it's not, there's not a greater insult than to show someone the bottom of your feet or to put your feet on them or to hit somebody with your shoes. That is the ultimate sign of disrespect because feet are regarded as the filthiest part of a person's body. People walked everywhere they went in biblical times, and so naturally their feet got pretty disgusting. Washing a person's feet was the job that no slave wanted. And what's interesting then is that if a Jew owned another Jewish slave, they couldn't even require the Jew Jewish slave to do it, even though they were their slave. You, you can't make me wash your feet. I'm a Jew. No, no, that was a job that was only reserved for Gentile slaves. Nobody wanted to do this job, which is why Simon Peter makes such a fuss about it. He couldn't believe it. Here was the master and the Lord taking the position of a Gentile slave. Far be it from me that would ever happen. 
And when Peter refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet, he was outraged that Jesus would allow himself to put himself in this position. He asked, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus' response here is pivotal to recognizing the true nature of God when he withholds from us. Jesus spoke these words in his response. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Jesus never intended to keep knowledge from his disciples forever. Well, why is he keeping knowledge from them at all? Because his priority is not on developing their knowledge, but on developing their faith. Strong faith is infinitely greater than knowledge and understanding. He doesn't withhold information forever either. Just long enough to develop their faith. He even promises in Luke 8, 17, For there is nothing hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. If there is something, listen, if there's something in your life that you're confused about, if you've ever felt as if God has led you to a dead-end alleyway and you're tremendously confused about what God is doing, this right now is God's response to you. What I do now you do not realize but you will understand hereafter. It's not his intention to keep you in the dark, but to develop your faith because that's more important to him than your understanding. Your understanding will come later. Right now, he's not finished developing you. Peter, dismissing this message, denies Jesus the opportunity, saying, never shall you wash my feet. It's a sad reality, but I just see so much of myself in Peter. I know God's up to something. I know that he's out for my good. I know that he loves me. But when the Lord patiently requests that I show a little bit of trust in him, man, I fail and I fall flat on my face. I tell the Lord, no, never, Lord. You know, thankfully, he loves me so much as he does Peter. He doesn't take no for an answer. Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And this statement, man, that is such a source of confusion for people. Some people think this is Jesus saying that unless a person is baptized, he cannot be saved. But Jesus isn't talking about baptism here. Notice Peter's scared stiff that he would have no part with Christ. And he says, then wash my hands and my head as well. He's still, he says, he's still holding himself up. But then he says, okay, well then wash me all over. And look what Jesus says. He says, He who has bathed needs not only wash his feet, but is completely clean. And he hasn't washed him yet, but look what he says. And he says, And you are clean. But not all of you. <coughs> Judas! <coughs> he knows. But you're clean. You haven't washed my feet yet. Jesus, you're saying I'm clean? Why? Because you are mine. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus isn't suggesting that we should regularly wash feet at church. However, this can be a powerful illustration. And honestly, I considered doing it for Sunday morning. And for all the introverts that are going to attend, you're welcome that I decided not to. Jesus was using this illustration not just as a point for humility and discipleship, 
Not just to illustrate that he, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, got off his throne and became a servant to all, but to put his power on display. He's teaching them that he will soon be on the cross and that he will make them clean by the shedding of his blood. And they are his, yet not all of them are his. And Jesus still somehow washed his betrayer's feet. You know, in verse 12, Jesus no longer keeps them in suspense. He asked them when he was finished, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and you call me Lord, and and you're right, for so I am. If anyone ever had a question about who Jesus seemed to think that he was, right there. I'm not only your rabbi and teacher, I'm your Lord. And if your Lord washes your feet, the most disgusting thing about you, you ought to also wash one another's feet. Your Lord did this for you. And you can't even do it for each other. Something seemed wrong about that. Jesus did something for them that they wouldn't even have considered doing for one another. We know this because in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, they were arguing about who was the greatest among them. Not a single one of them was willing to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to play this game about who's the greatest among us. I'm going to put myself as, in the position of a servant. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go get some water and a towel, and I'm going to wash your feet, bud. Not a single one of them was willing to say that. Yet here is the Lord washing their feet. This is a powerful message. Not just because Jesus shouldn't be the one washing their feet, but because he knew Judas. He knew Peter. Judas was going to betray him. Peter was going to deny him, yet he still poured out humility and grace for them. Jesus says to them, I'm giving you an example to follow, and none of you are greater than me, yet you should do as I did. And he says, and if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So yet again, he's giving us another lesson. We have knowledge. And we'll be blessed if we do them, but knowledge is not enough. Listen, it doesn't matter how well you know the Bible if you're not living out application of it. James 1.22 says, Don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Well, thanks, James. But here's a lesson in Scripture. We can know without having power to carry it out. More on that in just a second. I love how John finishes this chapter. It's just incredible. He says in in verse 19, this is awesome. Jesus says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. He promises to give them knowledge ahead of time. And what's incredible is, is that scripture is still fulfilled. Judas He knows you're going to betray him. You might want to come up with a different plan, but nope, he still betrays Jesus. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, no, I'm going to make sure that I don't. You still did. Now, what's truly incredible is the fact that the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus has issued out invitation after invitation to all who would listen in his public ministry saying, I am the living water. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not live in darkness, but will have the light of life. And whoever believes in the Son will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Yet the Pharisees, who were extremely dedicated at the art of studying the prophets and and, and studying the law, they had explicit knowledge that the Messiah would be rejected and crucified on a tree. 
And yet, not only did they they have foreknowledge of the Messiah, that he would be the stone the builders would reject, that the common sense would say, if we know he's coming, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that when Messiah comes, that he will be welcome here. But they knew he was going to be crucified on a tree. And you would think that instead of having the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him, they would shout something else. Yet God so amazingly displays his sovereignty that they did exactly what he said even though they had knowledge of scripture and yet scripture was fulfilled the, the question that keeps getting me is how did Jesus knowing his disciples would turn on him not only wash their feet but go to the cross for them It's more than just knowledge. It's the power of God. Today we have knowledge of Scripture. We know what God has commanded us to do, yet we are hopelessly unable to keep the law. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not covet. Do not worship false idols. Honor your mother and father. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Do not murder. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And do not have any other gods before me. We know the law. But we consistently fail in attempting to keep it. Just because we have knowledge does not mean that we have the power to carry it out. Jesus did. For he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 How could we hope to be like Christ? Don't you see, though, it's not about what you're able to do, but about what God is able to do in you. We have been chosen before the foundation of the earth to carry his name. We have been given the knowledge. And when we recognize our inability to keep the law, we understand that we are sinners who deserve eternity in hell. We submit to one truth, and that is that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It doesn't make sense, does it? That God could possess such love for us that he would be willing to not only overlook our sin, but to pay for it himself. Right? It doesn't make sense. And many times I've thought to myself, God couldn't love me knowing what I've done. But God says to me, are you kidding me? I knew before you did it. And I still chose you. Just really quickly, it reminds me of a story about two grandkids that were over at their grandmother's house. The grandson is outside playing with his sister, and he picks up a rock, and he throws it, and he hits his grandmother's pet duck in the head, and it kills it. And his sister's eyes go wide, and she looks at him, and she says, Um, I'm gonna tell. And her brother says, No, please, please don't say anything. I didn't mean to. And his his sister says, Okay, all right, you know what? I won't tell. But you're gonna have to do my chores. And the brother says, You know, I'll do anything just don't tell and so there he is later on washing the dishes for her and he wants to quit and his sister walks by and says to him hey 
remember the duck. And he gets back to work. And while he's later doing the laundry for her again, he wants to quit, but she walks by and says, remember the duck. And he gets back to work and he's later sweeping the floor and he wants to quit again. And she walks by and says, hey, remember the duck. And the grandson, he's just had enough. So he throws down the broom and he runs to his grandmother with tears in his eyes and he confesses his great sin that he killed the duck. And he begs for his grandmother to forgive him. Please, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. And the grandmother looks at him and says, Son, I know you killed the duck. I was watching through the window when you did it. You know what? I forgave you then. I was just waiting to see how long you were going to let your sister torment you into doing her chores before you confessed. (laughs) It doesn't make sense how God loves us because we don't bring anything to the marriage table. Man and all of his righteousness is but filthy rags before the Lord, yet he loves us. And as the psalmist wrote, Who am I that you would care for me? I don't understand. But you know what? I don't have to. God doesn't ask me to understand. He asks me to trust in Him. It's fitting that sin entered the world because Adam and Eve broke trust with God and that the power of sin is broken in our lives by initiating trust with Him again. Isn't that fitting? What's more is that when we trust our lives in the hands of God, we are given power to overcome. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and gives us this incredible ability to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. And the really beautiful thing is that when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, God reveals great mysteries of knowledge in Scripture to us and develops us into His Son. We get intimate knowledge that can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we ever feel like God's holding out on us or he's keeping us in the dark, just understand God might be doing exactly that. But in our confusion, God is telling us, you do not understand what I do now, but you will understand hereafter. We are told to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And when we do that, when we trust God, His great power comes upon us to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, do the real lights come on. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.